You're listening to the Weekly Sermon Podcast from Trinity Church Denver. To find out more about Trinity, visit our website, trinitychurchdenver.org. Our Old Testament reading is Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills, from where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is my keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. Yeah, yeah. And uh, do please stand for the reading of God's word. Um, our New Testament reading is 1 Timothy 2, and we'll be reading verses 1 through 4. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. So, Father, we come to your word needing wisdom. We come to your word needing eyes to see and to understand the day and the age in which we live, even to understand ourselves, but most of all, to understand you and what you've called us to now. So I pray that by your spirit, you would take up your word and wield it, that it might bear fruit in us, fruit that would, fruit that would honor you, fruit that would glorify you, fruit that would bring life to our neighbors, life to our city. In your name, we pray. Amen. My sophomore year in college, at the college I happen to attend, um, everyone has to take a semester of boxing. Um, There's no opting out of this class. You don't get a pass on this class. They put you in a room. They put gloves on your hands. There's a really mean coach there, and he tells you to punch someone. Um, And so for a semester, you learn the basics of boxing, and you learn what it feels like to get punched in the face. Now, one of the odd things about living in our day and age um, is you don't find yourself often walking down the street and someone just punching you in the face and starting to wail on you, um, with you needing to punch back in order to keep yourself from having a broken jaw. Um, And so when you step into the class, one of the very, very first things um, you're confronted with is the fact that you're not used to getting punched in the face. And you're not used to punching someone else in the face. I remember we'd gone through the class, done just a little bit of sparring, not a whole lot. But then for your final exam, you had to do a three-minute, five-minute round, three-minute, uh, sorry, three-round, five-minute round boxing final. The only guy in the class that was of my girth um, was a... Uh, my wife's the only one who laughed when I said that, and I appreciate the rest of you having restraint. 
um, <laughs> was a fellow football player, a good friend, um, or what I thought was a good friend. And so for the first round and a half, we were just kind of sort of punching each other in the face. And then right at the end of the second round, he caught me right on the nose. I don't think he meant to. I think he was still trying to be relatively friendly in his punches. But man, he caught me on the nose and blood began to spill. It was a very dramatic moment in my life. Um, There's nothing quite like having blood pour into your mouth from your nose. And so he went out in the third round and suddenly the entire context of this contest had changed. It was no longer two buddies just trying to pass our boxing final. I wanted to kill him. <laughs> and so it didn't matter how many times he threw a punch. I kept pushing him back into the corner and swinging as hard as I possibly could at his face. I'm fairly certain I had no good boxing form in this final. Um, but I was going to hit him in the head as hard as I could as many times as I could And so that was the boxing final. Um, Now, you may be wondering, what on earth does this have to do with really anything other than um, Pastor Brian telling stories about boxing? Here's what I think it has to do with as we continue this week to consider the ascension. Um, One of the things that we pointed out just two weeks ago was was how how small a view of the ascension was. Um, those of us in the West, and particularly those of us within the Protestant church, have had. I mean, I think that there's a number of reasons why we have minimized the ascension of Christ, that we've minimized his enthronement in the heavenlies. Um, We we haven't seen the practical necessity of this doctrine. Um, And I think one of the contributing factors is that we don't know that we're in a fight. We haven't understood the fact that we're getting punched in the face over and over and over again. One of the themes that you find developing throughout the New Testament um, is that everywhere you see the apostles addressing the reality of persecution, the reality of this conflict um, that that lay at, at the foundation of living in this world in this age. Um, There is a a drawing the the Christian's attention to the fact of Jesus' reign, his authority, his office right now. In other words, this doctrine was seen as precious, as non-negotiable, as absolutely essential for Christians to survive. For Christians to hold out hope in the midst of an age like ours. And so I want us to continue to reflect on, to meditate on the ascension. Um, And I'm going to rebuild kind of the, if if you can think of it as a layer cake that we've been building over the last few weeks. And this week end by drawing our attention um, to one implication of the ascension as we think about uh, what is the Christian to be doing as Jesus is at the right hand of the Father, reigning even now over places like Denver, Colorado. Places like the United States. So I'm going to take you all the way back three weeks ago. So if you've missed the last three weeks, don't worry. This is my excuse to re-preach all of the sermons um, because I like them. Um, Here's where we began. We began by asking the question, where is Jesus' body today? 
Um, and then essentially just establishing the fact, the confessional fact um, that has been true for Christians for 2,000 years, which is that Jesus Christ ascended, his body, um, his real body, not, not in some spiritual sense or emotional sense. Um, the disciples um, weren't testifying to the ascension of Jesus um, as if in some religious or, or merely sentimental or emotional sense, Jesus kind of existed in some fog up there with the Father in a spiritual way. But they actually testified um, that Jesus' body, the, the one that walked around, the one that ate fish, the one that had nails driven through his wrists and his feet, the one that had a spear driven through his side, that body had ascended to the right hand of the Father. And that if you were to ask the question, where is the body of Jesus today, which is oftentimes a great little segue for preachers on Easter, um, um, the answer to that question is, is seated at the right hand of the Father. It has been enthroned. He has been enthroned. And that matters for us um, for a number of reasons, not least of which the full humanity of Jesus is present in the heavenly of heavenlies, in the most holy place, exercising authority over all of history. This is what it means to be, one of the things it means to be a Christian. We confess and believe and live in the light of that confessional reality. Christ lives. His body, in his actual body, reigns. And so all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. Not in some um, non-physical spiritual sense, but in the full physicality of his existence. He bears all authority. If you remember... This is my chance to preach the first sermon again. One implication of that is that all of human life is now lived in the presence of God and under the authority of Jesus. Christianity is not merely some sort of spiritual or emotional or sentimental reality, but rather all the, the rough edges of life, your work life, how you relate to your spouse, how you raise your children, all of that is lived under the authority of Jesus. He does not have merely a kind of religious authority or spiritual authority. I'm not even sure exactly what that would mean, except that it's been propagated and held up as Christianity for the last several decades in America. Christianity is there merely to comfort you emotionally. Um, and that somehow it's unrelated to things like politics or economics. It's not welcome in the public sphere. The place of Jesus' body puts all of that to flight. Jesus Christ's authority extends over everything. Politics included. Nation states included. The education of your children included. How you talk to your spouse this afternoon and you're irritated that they're taking too much of the couch during your Sunday afternoon nap included. All of it under the authority of Jesus 
One way we know this is that Jesus' body, his whole body, ascended to the right hand of the Father. Last week, we considered what is Jesus up to? What is his activity? He's not just sitting there doing nothing, waiting for us to get our act together. But rather, he is actively doing things. And so we considered Revelation chapter 5. Is Jesus the Lamb, who's the Lion of Judah, the Lamb standing as if slain, is handed the book of the scroll, the unfolding of all of God's purposes for history, um, centered, um, uh, centered in Revelation at least, on the destruction of Jerusalem. And what we saw, particularly as we reflected on the book of Acts, is that what Jesus is up to in his ascended reign is he's turning the entire world upside down. He's remaking everything. So again, tied to the first week, he's not just remaking your heart, making a better heart. Again, not even sure exactly what that means, but we've talked like that for a lot of decades, like we did, right? He's not just remaking people's morals. He's remaking the world. He's reordering the whole socioeconomic and political universe. All of it being reordered under his reign and under his authority. And interwoven through all of it, something I want us to emphasize and look at particularly today, is our union with the ascended and living Jesus. The reason why the ascension is precious to us this morning is it makes possible what we've done this morning. In other words, what we've done this morning is not merely follow through some religious ceremonies that, that, that we can date back several centuries. You know, what we believe and confess is actually unfolding in this room is because of our baptism, practiced every week as we take bread and wine, and grounded by faith, we are united with Jesus such that where he is, so also are we. Does that make sense? Thank you for the reassuring nod. So if Jesus, in his body, is seated at the right hand of the Father, he's not in some far off place, He's here. Let's flip it. We are not in some far off place from the presence of the God who reigns over everything, the God who is absolute holiness, who is perfectly righteous and good, who dwells in unapproachable Light. We're not in some far off place echoing songs of that far off place. We are there. Like right now. I don't think you believe me. But it's paramount that you believe me. You must believe me. So, 
Let's look at it. Flip over to John 15. We're going to be, as we have in these last few weeks, running through all kinds of places in the Bible. But I want to draw your attention to John 15. I'm also going to allude to Romans chapter 11. This is all introduction. (laughs) Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does not, that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Now, this isn't just a neat little saying by Jesus. This is Jesus drawing on an entire tradition um, within the Old Testament in which Israel, the covenant people of God, are described as God's vineyard. Um, That they are the vineyard that God had planted. Um, It's generally uh, a theme that's accompanied by judgment in the Old Testament as they're a bad vineyard. Um, But Jesus here is saying he is now the vine and we are the branches. There is... Um, one of the, the, the very essences of Christianity is that we have been united to Jesus. We've been, um, as Paul will say in Romans 11, we've been grafted into the tree, into the vine. Such that what's true of the vine is true of us. You can't separate the vine from the branches unless you cut the branch off. The very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Why the atonement? We talk about the cross. That Jesus died on the cross. Why does that have any impact on us at all? It's because by faith, exemplified in baptism, practice at communion every week, we are in Jesus Christ. We are a part of that vine so that what has happened to the vine has happened to the branches. In other words, almost Every benefit you and I have received through the work of Jesus is only true because of this doctrine, our union with Christ. It is the the functional doctrine, I think, at the center of of all of our conversations about the nature of salvation. So if you're here today and you're not a Christian, this is what the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come and by faith in him you are united with him such that what is true of him is now true of you. So if he died for sins, you have already died for sin. If he was raised and vindicated on the third day in Jesus Christ, The New Testament says we have been raised with him. And if he's ascended to the right hand of the Father, we in our union with Jesus, grounded by faith in Jesus, the confession that he is Lord, are united with him as he reigns over all of history. Union with Jesus is the functional center around which Every other benefit we know and experience from the gospel is true. Your sins are forgiven if 
and because you're united to Jesus. You have even now, by the Spirit, been raised from the dead. If, because, you're united to Jesus. You've now been called to reign, to bear real authority in the world. If, and because, you're united to Jesus. Union with Christ is the center of all the benefits we experience in salvation. So, here's where we're going to go now. That was all introduction. Now we're in a sermon. And I want you to flip over to Revelation chapter 8. One of the primary themes, both of my boxing class, and it's, it's just a dramatic technique used in literature and used in stories. And you see it, um, the kids reminded me of this this morning, uh, that you see it in Star Wars in particular, um, the early part of Star Wars, where no one knows what they're actually up against. Um, so there's no sense of desperation Everybody thinks things are just going along relatively normal with little bumps, little problems with the trade commission or trade, whatever it's called. Um, I'm not a Star Wars nerd, but those of you who are can correct me later. Um, There is this sense, this experience that that their life in the universe is relatively normal. They're just trying to manage negotiations, manage those who are kind of getting slightly out of line. Up until the moment it's revealed that Emperor Palpatine is Darth Sidious. That's what he is. In other words, everything seems like just normal trouble. Like everything's just fine. Until they see that actually something gravely evil is at stake. Something having to do with life and death the triumph of good over evil is actually at work in the universe. Like in my boxing class, I thought, this is just a buddy, we're kind of sparring. almost fell over thinking about it. Um, we're just kind of hitting each other a little bit until the moment you get punched in the nose and it hurts. There's like real blood dripping down your chin. And it's embarrassing because he's your buddy and he just hurt you. Suddenly you realize, no, I'm actually in a fight. There's actually something at stake here. It's something more than just a grade that's going to go in a computer somewhere. There's actually something massively at stake with how I understand the situation that I find myself in right now. I want to draw our attention to the, the impact of the ascension as we consider how we pray And I think one of the things that keeps us from praying is not only a misunderstanding of the ascension, but a misunderstanding of where it is that we actually live and what actually is going on in the world around us. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his series of sermons on revival, spends an inordinate amount of time 
asking the question, why don't we pray? And what's fascinating is his answer is not so much that we're prideful. It's not so much that we don't understand the power of prayer. It's that we don't understand that we haven't, we don't believe in the necessity of prayer given the day and the age and the moment that we're living in. We, we don't understand how dark things really are. We think what's happening is merely politics. We think what's happening in the world is merely about kind of some economic issues. We think what's happening with our kids is merely an emotional difference. Or I need to learn how to talk nicer to my kids. Or they need to learn how to be more respectful of me. In other words, we don't understand that we've actually stepped into a boxing ring. But we don't understand the gravity of this moment in history and what's unfolding. So I want to take us back to Revelation to consider this moment in history. And we've looked at Romans, uh, Revelation chapter 5 and 6, considered the arrival of Jesus, the Lamb, in his ascension, his enthronement, and because of his worthiness, his faithfulness to the Father, bearing the sins of his people, he's given authority over heaven and earth and over all of history to see the purposes of God, the judgment of God unfold in the world, and particularly that judgment unfold in Jerusalem. In chapter 6, series of seals are opened. And those seals are the unfolding of God's judgments on the earth, upon Jerusalem in particular and Rome more generally. Chapter 7, you have that in the midst of all of that, that the, the full number of God's people will be saved. Not one of them will be lost. Um, and the irony of, I, this makes me just want to preach Revelation, um, of it's a a determined number of 144,000, and it's a number that can't be counted. And then you get to chapter 8, where I want us to spend some time this morning before looking at 1 Timothy 2. Listen to Revelation chapter 8, keeping all of that setting in mind. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. At the time that this is being written, 
Something was happening socially, culturally, religiously throughout the Roman Empire. The Christian church had started to get traction. So all the cities they went to, um, people were coming to faith. They were being raised from the dead, beginning to believe in Jesus and worship Jesus. And churches were being planted and established all over the Roman Empire, everywhere they went. And everywhere they went, there were synagogues. And, as we see reported in the book of Acts, um, some teachers from Jerusalem are essentially following Paul around everywhere he goes throughout the Roman Empire. And his churches started to get, began to get going. And they would come into the city um, and they would first start to distort the teaching, distort the nature of the gospel in those churches. And if that didn't work, and eventually it stopped working, they began to use the, the, the relationship of the synagogue to the Roman authorities in those towns to then turn against the church persecute the church, imprison members of the church, and eventually to start killing those who wouldn't renounce the name of Jesus. In other words, it was perfectly obvious that they were in a boxing ring. To live as a Christian in Rome for a season, it seemed like everything was relatively fine. And then they started getting punched in the face. They started being imprisoned. They started being persecuted. They started being killed. And the language of Revelation, the beast that came out of the sea, began to devour them, to kill them. They understood the problem. Everything wasn't fine. There were beasts eating them, trying to kill them. And the whole world seemed to be turned against what God was beginning to do in turning the world upside down by establishing his people and raising the dead in every city in the Roman Empire. So what happens? What happens when the full weight, the most powerful government and army in all of the world is turned against you? What happens when the religious leaders those who were supposed to know and delight in and receive the coming of Jesus the Messiah hate him and turn against you. They didn't form little armies. They didn't stockpile their ARs. They began to pray. See in other places in the book of Revelation they began to fall on their faces and plead with God, how long, O Lord, until you avenge our blood. And where do they pray from? They pray from under the altar, in the heavenly of heavenlies. 
They pray with the Son of Man, the Lion of Judah, the Lamb standing as if slain from the beginning of the world, and they plead with God to act. Now, easy follow-on from that is, now, therefore you go and pray. The promise of God is that he will act. That would be a dangerous thing to call you to this morning unless I show you what they prayed for and what happened. There's an interesting passage in Mark. Mark's gospel is he's leaving Jerusalem. They're on the Mount of Olives. And so they're looking back across the valley um, at the mountain, Mount Zion. Um, everywhere you see the mountain in Revelation, by the way, it's always in reference to Jerusalem particularly the Temple Mount. And Jesus says something to his disciples. Um, It's a text that's been used uh, to encourage Christians to pray um, forever. As long as as pastors have been um, trying to get people to pray, they've used this text. What's often not paid attention to in this text is what Jesus tells his disciples to pray for. And it's linked to the text we just read. Ask anything in my name and the Father will give it to you. If you say to this mountain, throw yourself into the sea, he will do it. Look what happens after the saints pray. Revelation chapter 8, starting in verse, I'll start in verse 7. First angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood. And these were thrown upon the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. The whole book of Revelation It's about the day that God took the mountain of Jerusalem and threw it into the sea of the Gentiles and destroyed it. And according to the book of Revelation, all of that unfolds as Jesus, sitting at the right hand of the Father, responds to the pleading prayer of his people who cry out, How long? We talk about prayer as though though we need just a a bit of emotional booing up to make it through our day because we have to deal with that student, if you're a teacher, you all know who that student is, or that client who's particularly demanding, or the kid's newfound love of throwing Cheerios on the ground. But when the Bible calls us to prayer, it describes mountains being thrown into the sea in which tens of thousands of people are killed and face the judgment of God. It describes plagues. It describes the overthrowing of governments. Describes socioeconomic collapse. 
describes the destruction of nations and empires and cultures. In the midst of all of it, God calling people to repent, lest they be destroyed. And it calls us to pray as those who are under the altar. As those called to live in this world bearing witness to the ascension of Jesus and his reign and his authority and his worthiness over all the nations of the earth. And the question I have for you is do you understand that you're in a fight? See, God has handed us a stick of dynamite. And we often think of it as some sort of just mere psychological or therapeutic comfort. But God has handed you a stick of dynamite. And we live in an age, an age filled with madness, in which the madness of the world, in which it's rebellion against God, against a, a, a rebellion against his law and his authority and his goodness and his beauty and his love continues to grow and grow and grow and grow. And in the midst of that madness, he's handed you a stick of dynamite. And he's told you to pray that this mountain would be thrown into the sea. And as you do so, you do, don't do it from a far off distance. You don't do it from a cave somewhere. Um, you, you're not doing it from like a different planet. And God's out there and maybe the message will get there. You do it from the very altar that stands before the throne of God himself. When we gather in this room and we kneel, we kneel in his presence. When you confess your sins, you're confessing your sins in his ear. But when our elders stand up in front of this room and plead with God to bless us, to overthrow evil in our city and see to it that men and women are saved and raised from the dead to worship and know Jesus forever and ever and ever, they do so standing before God. When we raise our children to know him and love him, we don't do it telling folk tales about a far off king. We do it as those who are invited into his presence day after day after day after today. And by faith in Jesus, we are welcomed in over and over and over again. He has handed you a stick of dynamite. So, Psalm 121, as we live in this hour and in this day, a day in which insanity and evil seems to be increasing, we say with the psalmist, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Let's pray and prepare for communion. Communion.